So here we are, we find ourselves at Matthew chapter 13. Now, um, in Matthew chapter 13, we are going to, these first few verses here, we're going to read a story that I'm sure if you've been a Christian or you've been around church for any amount of time, you've heard about this story. It's the story, the parable of the sower. And maybe you even guessed that or figured that out just by looking at the screen or the bulletin cover this morning. At which point, you know, we, we can look at a passage like this and go, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right, the, the passage of the sower. I don't know how many of you have done what the, the artwork here is, is depicting. I've done, it, I've done it once or twice before I realized that uh, a seed spreader is a lot uh, quicker. And, uh, but I have done that. I've even done the little like twirly one, like you put seeds in this little thing and it's a handle and you spin this wheel and it like throws seeds everywhere. Done that. Um, and I think I did this maybe once or twice. But a person who broadcasts seed or scatters seed is considered a sower because they are sowing the seed. And this picture of like um, a sower, it's actually a very iconic picture. I know we live in a more modern society. We have cities and industry and metropolitan areas. But for most of human history, an image of a sower would be so easily understood to people. I know that for Jesus, as he's about to share this parable, a majority of the people listening, if not all of them, would just go totally get what you're saying totally understand the the things and the circumstances that you're talking about because we see people sowing all the time. In fact, I sow seeds. That's what I think the listeners during Jesus's time would have said. But I want you to realize this, that even in our great country here, it, you know, had a, it has a huge agricultural component, not just in the Central Valley here, but the large middle section of our country There's a lot of agriculture that happens within our country where even this image of a sower, while we have more modern and mechanized ways of of sowing seeds, the concept is still really well understood. But this picture is iconic. This at least pose is iconic. Let's take a little history, a little art history. We'll go about 500 years of history and we'll look at the image of a sower in history. So in 1557, a man named Peter Bruegel painted this. It's called Landscape with the Parable of the Sower. Now it's a bit bright up here on the stage, but the sower, maybe we can dim the lights just a little bit for this section here. Um, The sower is here in the very front bottom left corner of this image. And so it's a landscape portrait that's a landscape portrait that's, that's painted with a sower and the parable of the sower happening here. So great, nice landscape, sower in the front, 1557. You fast forward to 1865, a Frenchman, Jean-Francois Millet, Jean-Francois Millet, he started with some sketches of a sower and you see this like very uh, iconic pose. It's like one of those, like, what is he doing? Well, he's got one hand reaching into the satchel or the sack, grabbing the seed, the other hand, one hand back after he's grabbed it out of the sack and the other hand kind of holding the sack and he's about to broadcast the seed while taking a step. It was just a smooth motion of walking and broadcasting so that it would be even. So there was an early sketch from Francois Millet. Uh, Let's see if we've got another one here. And so then he fleshed out that a little bit and sketched it out and you can see the seed being thrown. Keep in mind, there's a few other things that are happening. Uh, There's some uh, plowing or uh, happening back there. 
And then you see some birds, of course, where there's seeds, birds are going to look for a free meal kind of a thing. And then as you go on, as he started to refine it even more, same man, Francois Millet, uh, again, with the image of the sower. Again, that iconic walk and uh, scattering and broadcasting the seed. In fact, Millet was so influential that Vincent van Gogh decided to pay respects to um, how, uh, how dedicated he was to the image of the sower. And so Vincent van Gogh has an interpretation on it. And there's Vincent van Gogh for you. Uh, 1888. And this one's called the sower as well. And, you know, he, again, there's that pose. There's that like just scattering the seed. He put the sun back there and made the sun in that very impressionistic way where it has almost looks like a sunflower that's in the background there. And a farmhouse. And of course, you can see some birds as well. So then we go forward in history now in the 1900s, 1930. Um, there was uh, the Nebraska State Capitol building. Now, I've never been to Nebraska. At least I don't think I have. Maybe I've driven through, but I don't remember that. Uh, but I wouldn't, Nebraska is not really known for its mountains. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Nebraska is really known for its towering peaks or mountains. Um, and, and so this Capitol building stands out. I mean, it is a tall, towering building right there in Nebraska. But what I want you to notice is to top off their Capitol building, way at the top there is a 19-foot statue, and I think we'll see it here in this next one. Will you look at that? It's a sower. It's a sower up there. Again, very classic pose of broadcasting the seed. And it's this statue here on the Nebraska State Capitol that inspired John Richardson uh, in the 2000s to come up with the image that we see here on our screen. And so I just want you to understand, like, even though you may not use the word sower and you may not say, well, that I don't, you know, I'm not very familiar with that. Just know that it's not an uncommon picture in human history. And so Jesus now is about to use a sower, a seed and some soil as an example. So that is the title of this morning's message. The title of this morning's message is the sower, the seed, and the soil. Let's pray. We're going to drop right into Matthew 13, verse 1. Papa, as we come before you this morning, thank you that you've brought us here today. Thank you that you love us so much. You've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. I just thank you that your presence is here among us. And I pray that we would be, each one of us, receptive to hear you. Pray that we wouldn't resist your word, but that we would consider it, that we wouldn't shut off our minds, but we would engage our minds, that we would not shut off our hearts, but we would engage our hearts in what we hear. Father, thank you so much for all you've done. Holy Spirit, I pray you'd empower me to do the work of the ministry this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, let's read a couple, two verses here. Matthew 13, verse one and two. The same day, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat behind... <laughs> nice one. Let's try again. Second service. Here we go. Matthew 13, verses 1 and 2. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. So what's been going on is, especially in chapters 11 and 12 of Matthew, there have been critics 
There have been religious people that have been coming and questioning Jesus. They know who he is. They don't want to receive who he is. And so they begin to badmouth him, slander him, and accuse him of so many things that are false. But even through all of that, people still want to hear Jesus. There's something about the way that he teaches and what he's saying. They've never heard anything quite like what Jesus is doing and saying. And so they start to gather. And it says by a sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, which is uh, Lake Kinesareth. It's just a, it's a very large lake, but it, it's not a sea like you and I would think of a sea. So Jesus is there, I'm sure, by the shoreline. And then all of a sudden people want to hear him. And I'm sure at some point he finds himself with his feet a little bit wet because they're all around him. And so he decides at this point to get into a boat and go off just a little ways. And using the topography as an amphitheater, he begins to teach. He begins to share. Now, in our culture, the teacher stands and the listeners sit. But in Jewish cultures, the teacher sits and the listeners stand. And so Jesus is sitting on a boat and everyone is standing on the shore. And that's the scene that we have right now. And I've been so inspired by this methodology that I think even this second service, we should start to do that. Don't worry. I only, I only average about 55 minutes a message. So it'll be fine. I, I'm going to get a real comfy. These look like comfy chairs. I think I'm going to sit and you guys can stand for 55 or so minutes. Keep in mind, keep in mind that that's what they did. That's what they did. They would stand to hear what someone would say. And as they're standing, they're just focused and listening. And I guess one of the benefits of standing too, it's, it's a little harder to fall asleep while you're standing up. So that the teacher will at least know if somebody's dropped off because they would have literally dropped off and fallen over. Verse number three. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word that we're reading. I said this first service, and I just feel compelled to say this again. What you believe about God's word says a lot about what you believe about God. And while that might seem like a very obvious statement, realize this, that a person's words that they use, it's an extension of who they are. It is who they are. I did this first service and I'll do it again. We'll see how it works this service. But let me give you a few words from a person and you tell me if you can identify this person. That's finer than frog hairs. That's finer than frog hairs. Some of you are just like, what? And, and for the rest of you, who is it? Joe Kent, Pastor Joe. The shorter guy that was up here earlier, right? Uh, 
that, that, that does pre-service. Pastor Joe, who taught on Wednesday night. That's a phrase that Pastor Joe uses, finer than frog, frog hair. I don't know if frog hairs is hyphenated or if it's two different words. But anyway, so four or five words or so. It's amazing. You were able to pick out an individual human being in all of humanity by me just giving you five words. Words are a person. They are an extension of a person. There's another uh, person that has a phrase. There's lots of people. I'm sure you know people that have these phrases that if you said them, you know, you would know them by their phrase. I'll give you one and maybe some of you would know who this is. That's a great Sunday school answer. Jim Proctor. That's right. Jim Proctor. That's a great Sunday school lesson. In six words, you identified one human being in all of human history. Words are important because words are an extension of a person. God's word is an extension of God. What you believe about God's word is what you believe about God. It's, you can't separate his words from his character. You can't say, ah, outdated fairy tale book, you know, dry, boring, because here's what you're saying. God is outdated, a fairy tale, dry. God is boring. God is irrelevant. God, you can't say, I love God, but I don't really care for this book. You know what you're actually saying? I don't really care for God. What you believe about God's word will tell you what you believe about God. How much you love God's word will show you how much you love God. You can't say you love God and not be in his word. You can't. You can't say you know somebody really well, yet never spend any time with them. You can't. So the question is, how well do you know God's word? Because that is a direct link with how well you know God. And I pray that as I say that this morning, you would realize, because I do, I want to dive even further into God's word because I want to know him more. At no point in my life do I ever want to get to the point where I go, I know God enough. We should continually dive into his word and look and see what he has to say. The conference that I went to was a pastor, pastor's conference and uh, the theme was Dear Pastor. And it was over three days. And I love the Calvary Chapel family of churches because if there's anything in Calvary Chapel is known for, it's not music per se, because that changes from church to church. But what a Calvary Chapel is known for is that they teach the word. And so it, the, the, the title of the conference was called Dear Pastor and it was going through the books of First and Second Timothy. Oh, okay, good. Like a, like a topical overview. No, every chapter of First and Second Timothy in three days. Eight studies through the eight chapters of First and Second Timothy. And now I've studied First and Second Timothy. I've taught First and Second Timothy. But I had an opportunity, and I do this whenever I listen to messages, whether they're online, podcasts, or in person. And I was like, oh yeah, I love looking back at my notes. And it's like, yeah, I just, you know, I took one or two. I took, there we go. Yeah, so, yeah, there's a good dozen to 15 pages of notes. 
because, well, Jim, don't you know First and Second Timothy? Uh, I've taught it. I know it. But as you dive back into God's word, I'm not in the same place I was the last time I read it. And God wants to reveal more to me about himself as I love his word. I just ask you this question. Do you love God's word? And I want to encourage you, if you don't love God's word, but you go, I, you know, I think I should love God's word. Ask God to give you a heart that loves his word and he will give you a heart that loves his word and you will know God more and more. So the four soils that we've been looking at here, you know, that we look in this parable here, there's a sower broadcasting seed. The seed is going out and it's landing on soil. And we, we saw that there's four different kinds of soil. Here's a quick list of the four soils that we see here in the first power to Matthew chapter 13. In verse four, we saw that there's soil that's trampled into kind of like a path. Let's call that hard soil. It's been hardened. Verse five shows us that there's rocky soil and it's that the rocks are underneath because there's a little bit of soil above it. It's very shallow. Verse number seven, Jesus speaks about thorny soil, meaning the soil is compromised. There's something else that's germinating in that soil. And in verse eight, the fourth type of soil in this parable is fertile soil or good soil, as Jesus would call it. And this list will be up as we go through each one of these two. So if you haven't gotten those, that's no problem. Now, if you were waiting during the study of Matthew, we've been in Matthew now for over a year and a half because we started in chapter one. If you were like, oh, great, Matthew, he's got a lot of parables in Matthew. I'm excited to get to the parables. You would have had to wait until this morning to get to the very first parable in Matthew. The first parable in Matthew doesn't show up until this chapter, the 13th chapter. But boy, once we get to the parables, it's like Jesus flips the parable switch because there's seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. So for the next couple weeks, let's be honest, months, we're going to be looking at parables. And I'm not going to tell you too much about what a parable is because Jesus doesn't do that right away. Next Sunday, we'll talk about parables in general because Jesus doesn't just tell people about a parable. He just starts with a parable. And that's why we're starting with one this morning. So um, sometimes when, and maybe you found yourself doing this, you read the Bible and you say, I wonder what that means. I know I've done it especially in the Old Testament, there's times where I'm going, okay, what is going on right now? Who's taken into captivity and why are they worshiping that thing? And what's all this sacrifice about? And I'm not really sure what's going on. Well, maybe you found yourself doing this. When you, re- when you come across something in the Bible you don't understand, you begin to speculate. You come up with ideas as to what that means. You go, maybe it means this, maybe it means that. I don't think there's anything wrong with speculating per se, because this pastor even does it. I just hope that when I do it or I go, hey, this is a thought that I have that I actually preface it that way, where I go, hey, listen, this isn't the gospel. This is just me thinking out loud. Maybe this is what this means, or maybe this is the angle that God is going for. But at the end of the day, I think we can agree on this. The most important thing is not what you think the Bible says or what I think the Bible says, but what the Bible actually says. What we want to know is not my opinion or your opinion or anybody else's opinion. What we want to know is what God meant when he wrote his, when his word was written. And so that involves a little bit of digging. Sometimes you just got to study and you got to look and compare passages and go, well, let's be consistent with the word and see how it operates that way. Well, what I love about this parable, the one of the parable of the sower and the seed and the soils is this. You and I don't have to speculate about this parable. We don't. 
You and I don't even have to guess about this parable at all. Well, pastor, what? You're going to tell us what it actually means? Well, how do you know it actually means that? Here's how I know. Because Jesus is going to explain this parable. The person who's sharing this, God in the flesh, gives the parable, and now he's going to explain what each of those components in the parable mean. And he doesn't do this with every parable, but he will with two of the parables in Matthew chapter 13. So let's hear Jesus give the explanation. So this morning's message is split up. Verses 1 through 9, we already read, which is a parable. Now we're going to jump to verse 18 to 23. And we're going to go from 18 to 23 and look at Jesus explaining the parable. Next Sunday, we'll do the verses in between. So Matthew 13, verse 18 to 23. Jesus speaking from the boat to the shore. Um, Hear then the parable of the sower. Now, the sower is a messenger. I think we can agree with this. The sower, the sower's task is to broadcast and spread. I think that's an understood part here. So Jesus is going to explain that the sower is the messenger. Got some message to send and he's spreading it out there. Um, what is the thing that, he, that the sower is actually throwing out there? In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, this may not be the clearest thing. You may look at it and go, I, I think I know what he's throwing out there, but I'm not exactly sure. Some people then can start to speculate and go, well, maybe that's opportunities. And I need to throw opportunities out into my life and have them grow. Well, that sounds really good, but that's wrong. How do you know? Because Matthew is not the only person to record the parable of the sower. So there's parallel passages in the Bible written by other people, and we get a fuller picture as we look at the parallel passages. So the parallels for Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower, you will find them in Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8. So if you read Mark chapter 4 and Luke chapter 8, you'll see their perspectives on Jesus sharing this explanation as well and the parable. So let's try to figure out, we, we know that the messenger is the sower, the one who's broadcasting the seed, but this is a really important question. What's the seed? Like, we want to know without any doubt what this seed is. It's being thrown out. For that, we go to the Gospel of Luke, the parallel passage, Luke 8, verse 11. And very clearly, Luke 8, 11 says this. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. That's what it is. There is no other interpretation for it. Jesus told us what the seed is. It's God's word, which, remember, is an extension of God. It is who he is. And so we got two things here. We know what the, we know who the sower is and we know the seed of God's word. Let me say this. This is just important. We talked about God's word and how you can identify a person by their words. It is a dangerous thing when a church stops teaching God's word, because when you stop teaching God's word, you no longer are letting people know who God is. Well, I don't want to talk about God's word. I'll just tell you myself. No, shut your mouth and read God's word. I don't want to hear your interpretation of God. I want to hear what God has to say about himself. He is able to self-identify. He can tell me who he is. Just show me where in the Bible I can find that. A church that doesn't teach the word of God at that point is not going to suddenly have a vacuum where nothing is taught. Oh no, something will absolutely be taught. And I can guarantee you this, it will be of lesser value if the word of God is not being taught. I guarantee you, because there's nothing more valuable than the word of God. What you'll start to get then is human opinions, 
throw a little bit of politics in there. That's an awesome way to divide a church. Um, you know, and then, um, you know, kind of get a pastor, get up on his hobby horse and start sharing or, you know, get up on his little, you know, soapbox and start talking about whatever. And I guarantee you that all of those things are of far less worth than the word of God being taught. For some of you, this won't be the last church you go to because God will have you move, maybe your college and you go find someplace else. I just encourage you. You don't have to go to a Calvary Chapel church. You just need to go to a church that teaches God's word. Go to a church that teaches God's word. Because if you don't get taught God's word, how are you going to know who God is? What he thinks about you. What he thinks about right and wrong. So I just want to just tell you that's so important. In fact, the word of God is so important. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter 1.23. For those that are Christians, it says, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, not a seed that would die, but of imperishable. What is this unkillable seed? Through the living and abiding word of God. The word of God is the seed. Jesus said it. Peter talks about it. You'll see it throughout scripture. And it has the ability to change a person's life forever. So we got the sower. The sower is a messenger. We got the seed. The seed is the word of God. And now the soil, Jesus is going to describe to us here that the soil, the four soils we saw, they're the heart of a human being. So this morning, we saw the title on the screen. The title is the sower, the seed, and the soil. But if we substitute out what Jesus just explained this parable to be, this could also have been the title of this morning's message. The messenger, the word, and the heart. Because that's what we're talking about this morning. The messenger, the word, and the heart. Now, the condition of a person's heart has a lot to do with how they can receive God's word. Did you notice that about this parable? That the thing that's changing in this parable is not the sower. The sower is the same person. The sower is just throwing the seed out. The thing that's changing in this parable is not the seed. The seed is the word of God. The word of God is not changing. It doesn't need to change. It doesn't need to be updated for 2019. What is the thing that's changing in this parable? The soil. The soil is what's changing in this parable, which, is, which tells me then what the parable is showing us is how the type of heart you have affects how well you receive God's word. You know, there's people that like to blame pastors and as a pastor let me tell you people have good reason to blame pastors because they've got to deal with an inadequate messenger no pastor is perfect none of them are there's only one perfect teacher and that's jesus so we're we're stuck with imperfect teachers of god's word but i've seen a trend where when a person disagrees with god's word they go well i didn't really like that pastor Okay, were they teaching God's word? Were they broadcasting the word of God? I mean, if the answer is they're not broadcasting the word of God, well, yeah, no, they're not sowing God's word then. Yeah, that, okay. But if the person's like, well, no, they read out of the Bible and all this. I just didn't like them. Nah. Notice how receiving the word of God has not a whole lot to do with the messenger. Receiving the word of God doesn't have anything to do with the word of God in the sense that the word of God has to change to appeal to us. No, no, the word of God is not changing. 
It works. It has worked. It will, it does work and it will work for eternity. So what's the issue here in this parable about not being able to receive the truth of God's word? A person's heart. That's really what it comes down to. Believe me, I get it. I understand that there's certain Bible teachers that I can listen to easier than others. I get that. But at the end of the day, God has to remind me, Jim, shut up and listen to my word being taught. Because we can get hung up on the delivery system and miss the message completely because our hearts are in the wrong place. And so when somebody comes up and I'm challenged by their style or their pitch or the number of times they say, um, or like, or whatever. I mean, I've got plenty of, you guys suffer through a lot of my idiosyncrasies. So we, you know, if you want to pick apart any person sharing God's word, that's not hard because you're, you're looking at a sinner. But if you get hung up on that, then your heart's wrong because you're missing the point. The point is God's word's being taught. And there's countries in this world where it's not even allowed. It's illegal. We have like this buffet line and we're like, I don't like the cauliflower. Well, shut your mouth and eat your vegetables. Like, come on already. Preach it? Yeah, I'm going, we're going there, you know? Like, we are so spoiled with the number of ways that the word of God can be delivered, radio station, internet, live to us. I can't find a church. Shut up. The issue is not church. Get a mirror. The issue is your heart. God's word is not broken. God's messengers are imperfect, but that's nothing new. The actual issue is the heart. And so like going to a doctor and having like a checkup and and maybe as I get older, I think there's some other things I have to look forward to. Like, you know, hey, we're going to see how your heart's doing, how the old ticker's doing and, you know, get on this treadmill and let's bump it up to 5, 11. Let's just keep turning it off, right? And there are stories of people that have died on the treadmill. Why? Because they had an existing heart condition that they didn't know about. I'm as strong as an ox. Everything's great. Well, there's only one way to find that out. Just do a little mild walking. Walking? What is that? Okay. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, something's... Okay, sit down. Hold on. Let's take a look. And then it's revealed that there's a heart issue. See, the thing with parables, we'll go into this more next Sunday, but here's some quick things about a parable. A parable is designed to draw out somebody who's honestly seeking the truth. If you're really seeking the truth, a parable should make you lean forward and go, hold on a second. I think Jesus is talking about something more than just throwing seeds out. You're right. Keep leaning forward because you're, on, you're in the right direction there. The other thing with the parable, though, a parable is designed to reveal the heart of the person reading the parable. I don't know who to give credit to this quote from, but it's been said that as you read the Bible, the Bible is reading you. Remember, the Bible is an extension of God. It's not this passive thing. It's living and it's active. As you read God's word, it's reading you. It's revealing things to you. It's saying things to you about your life. It's not like, oh, that's a great passage for this sinful person that I know. No, no, no. It's for you. When I study to teach God's word, it's not like I'm like, man, what are those sinners, those heathen Atelios need to know? Like, such a miserable lot. I just, uh... no, I'm looking at it going, what a wretch I am. God, I need you. 
When you hear God's word, when you read God's word, it's for you first. Don't start reading it or hearing it for somebody else. Because then you may get this inflated illusion of yourself of how you're superior in your spirituality and that's how Pharisees are made. So as we read the word of God, it's reading us and our heart is so important. So let's listen to Jesus as he explains this parable. Look in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 13. He's going to start off with that first soil that we talked about there. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So if we put up that list of uh, the four types of soils, see the very first one, it's soil that's trampled. Now, in a very practical way, the workers of the field had to be able to get from the middle of the field to the edge of the field to their house. So they're just going to walk on the field. And what happens, you get one, two, two dozen, three dozen people starting to walk back and forth and you get this pressed down soil. It used to be the same consistency as the rest of the fertile soil or the rest of the soil, but because people are walking on it, it gets packed down. It's getting hard. Jesus is saying that there are people who can't, who, who are, it's difficult for them to receive the word of God because they have hard hearts. Why are their hearts hard? Because their heart, their hearts have been trampled upon. Some of you this morning or in the sound of my voice, you understand that. You've experienced pain, maybe within your own family, maybe from your spouse or a previous church or some Christian experience and you're just like, nah. And what's happened is you've been trampled on and the soil of your heart has gotten harder. So then as the seed of God's word is being broadcast, it doesn't penetrate the soil. It kind of bounces off or sits on top, which makes it perfect pickings for the birds. For those of you that are into birds, that's awesome. However, in lots of passages of scripture, they represent the enemy. And especially in this passage of scripture. These aren't your cute little tweety birds coming in. Oh, just feed the birds. No, these are sinister birds with bad intentions. And they have a feast when they come across a person's heart who's hard. Because as the word is going out, it doesn't penetrate, it sits on top. And then the enemy comes by. In fact, Jesus is very clear. He says, the evil one in verse 19 comes. Satan comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. You know, I'm not saying that you haven't gone through things that have trampled your heart and made you a little harder, but I just want you to know the enemy loves it if you hold on to that. The enemy loves it if you do not forgive, because if you do not forgive, you're not hurting anybody that's wronged you. <laughs> don't, don't get that illusion in your head. Like, I'm going to be mad at them. And it's going to hurt them. They honestly probably don't care. The only person it's hurting is you. And as you keep with the sin of unforgiveness and you don't forgive those that have wronged you, what's happening is your heart is being trampled on. Yes, it may have been trampled on by somebody else, but you know who's packing it down now? You are. You are. As you hold that grudge, you're just packing the soil of your heart down harder and harder. And then you wonder, ah, I'm not really hearing God's word. I wonder why. Because it's only sitting on top of your heart because you've compressed your heart so hard. Yeah, maybe somebody started it in the past, but you've decided to take the baton and just keep hardening your heart on your own. You think about the Old Testament, you think about the, the Pharaoh of Egypt. God's doing miracles in Egypt and what happens with Pharaoh's heart? It just keeps getting harder and harder. 
He just needed to just go, I submit to you, God who created everything. But instead he goes, no, I will not. If you do not submit to God, then you will harden your heart. And if you harden your heart, you can come hear a message about the life-giving truth of Jesus and it won't even affect you. You know why? Because it didn't stay long enough before Satan came by and said, thank you very much. That's the first soil. Jesus is going to explain the second one, the rocky one, verse number 20 in your Bibles, Matthew 13. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Wow, sounds good so far. Keep going, verse 21. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately, immediately he falls away. This is the person who the soil of their heart is shallow because underneath the thin layer of soil are rocks. We lived in Arizona and moving from Queens, New York, you know, we lived at, our property was like 40 feet wide by 100 feet long. Like that was our living in the suburbs in Queens, New York. So then I moved to Arizona, get married, all that happens and we end up on four acres of property. This city kid didn't know what to do with four acres of property. I'm like, what do I do with four acres of property? Like, I don't know. And so it's like, well, we'll plant some trees because it's Arizona. It's pretty brown. So it's like, let's plant some trees. Well, then I realized what open range means because if you want to find out what open range means, plant some trees and then the next morning, watch the cows come and eat your trees that you just (laughs) planted. So then you have to go, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to put up a fence. But the thing is, the property is 400 feet on a side. So it's like 1,600 feet of fencing. And I'm like, I've never put a single fence up. Well, we're diving in the deep end now. So you like, I know, I've, I've seen people dig holes. I can do this, right? So get a shovel and you start and like, I don't know, a couple, six inches into the ground, your shovel hits and it just has this sound like ding, ding, like what? So in Arizona, it's called caliche. It's this limestone that when the moisture comes, it basically makes it, turns it into a cement. So six inches under the soil is this cement layer, effectively, a natural cement layer. So a, a shovel's not going to work. That's when you go, oh, go to, go to Home Depot or Lowe's and go get the heavy tools. Like get the pickaxe, which as a guy, you're like, cool, I have an excuse to go get a pickaxe. And you get this digging bar and you just take out all your aggression. You're having a rough day, no problem. You know, you just go and you just start digging holes, like just throwing the digging bar into this hole and you pull these rocks out. And you do it because if you just plant a tree or you plant something on the surface, its roots can't get any deeper. And when the Arizona heat kicks in, it's gonna, that plant will struggle or that tree will struggle and then die. And so you had to take the time. So putting in fence posts, then you learn about power tools and you buy a generator and you get a jackhammer and you have a blast. You're just like, yeah! All that to say, for the person who has a rocky heart, it sounded like things were going great and that's the illusion of a person that has, has a heart that has rock, a rock layer just under the surface is they hear God's word And there's this, it's almost this overly emotional response. I mean, if you looked at that in verse 20, it said, uh, it said immediately receives it with joy. It's like this, like, yeah, I love Jesus. God's awesome. Yeah, cool. I agree. That's great. And you know what? Being a Christian should have an emotional component. Absolutely. It's just the emotions can't be running the train. Because here's the thing with emotions. They don't stay at their peak all the time. They will eventually find the basement. And then you begin the roller coaster life uh, ride of emotions in life. That's just how it is being a human being. 
That's why you can't have your faith led by your emotions. Because when you feel great, that means God's amazing. And when you feel not that great, you start to question God's goodness. And for the person with rocky ground, a heart of rocky ground, the word of God comes into their life and they're like, yeah, I'm not opposed to God. I love God. He's great. It's awesome. But then when challenge starts to show up in their life, I don't know. Like I don't, their emotions start to tank. And then they start to question God. I don't know if he loves me. If he loved me, how come he's not? How, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I'm just really questioning my faith. I don't really know. That's a person with rocky ground, a rocky heart. There's no depth to the soil of their heart. It's a very superficial relationship with God. It's not one based on his character. It's one based on their emotion. You know, here at this church, if somebody wants to serve at the church, you know, and this has happened. We've had people come and they're like, hey, really excited. I've been here for like two hours, however long your service is, and I totally want to jump in and serve. Cool. But you don't know us yet. So how about you come a couple more weeks and we get to, you get to know us and we get to know you. You would be surprised how many people after hearing that very simple and I would say logical statement are like, oh, well, okay, fine. Yeah, this, I'll, cool, I'll take my talents to another church then. Well, thank you. That was, very, that was very revealing. For a person that is not committed for any, that's what you'll see with somebody with a rocky heart is they're not, they're not into any level of commitment. They're looking for an instantaneous emotional high. But the problem is emotional highs don't last every day of this life. So then my question is this, what happens when you don't feel amazing that you're a Christian? You know what some people do that are on an emotional high that have a rocky ground for their heart? They fake it. How you doing? Awesome. God is awesome. Now you're fake. Now you've become a fake. You know, it's okay. If you come to tell this Christian fellowship, it's like, how are you doing? It's okay for you to go, hey, I'm kind of broken and I just, um, I'm struggling. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's pray for you. We don't expect you to be like, everything's great. Because then you'd be a liar and unrelatable because you're not real. Be real. Do not let your faith be led by your emotions because they will fail you. But if you let your faith be led by who God is, there's this stability that carries you even through the, the shadows of your life where you're just like, oh, it's just a rough season of my life. That's okay. God's still good and you know it. His word is going to carry you through. Let's look at the, the third soil here. Verse 22, Jesus is going to explain it. As for what was sown amongst thorns, this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the person who has a compromised life. The soil of their life is compromised. Compromised, what do you mean? There's something else growing in the soil of their heart that is not beneficial. In fact, is destructive. And so, yes, they hear the word of God. The word of God takes root or it starts to grow, but then something else sinister is growing alongside and begins to entangle the word of God and the truth of God's word and then begins to choke it out. I mean, we live in Humboldt County. I've never seen thorns grow faster anywhere than here in Humboldt County. Blackberries are great until, they're, until you realize you have a tree, an entire tree that has been overtaken by blackberries. And then you have the task of cutting and slowly trying to, you can't be harsh and tear them off. You'll destroy the tree. 
And so you have to carefully, slowly pull the thorns out. And as you're doing it, you're getting stuck with the thorns as well. You know, the thing with thorns is the sinister nature of thorns is they grow very relatively slowly. And they hope you won't notice them when they're young. And they hope that you'll think that they're, they're the truth. And then at some point, they'll start to curve and wrap around. Jesus tells us what the thorns are in this parable. He says the cares of the world. It is a sad thing when the Christian begins to worry about things that the world worries about. Oh no, what's my future going to be? I'm sorry, do you not have a father in heaven who created everything? Why are you acting like you don't know God who created everything? Why do you act like you don't know God who knows the future? Why are you resorting to plan B where you've, you've said, you know what, God, I, you're taking too long. I think I got this on my own. Why are we acting like the world? You know why? Because maybe the cares of the world and what the world tells you is important. You're actually believing the lie. And so you're starting to model your life after the world. You know what? You've got a compromised life because the thorns of this world have no, they are totally fine with you having them grow right next to the word of God because in time they'll start to choke out God's word. It also says the deceitfulness of riches. There's nothing wrong with having nice stuff, but the deceitfulness of riches is when you think having more stuff is what will fill the void in your life. It never will. Howard Hughes a multimillionaire, maybe even billionaire in today's dollars, his phrase, Mr. Hughes, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. That's what the discontentedness of what our world teaches us will lead you to. When you buy a product, as you're holding it, you haven't even gotten it out of your box. It's like, you're so dumb. That's the old thing. We just came up with the new thing. Oh, you haven't even opened it. And you're just like, oh, it's not as good as the new thing. Ah, okay, fine. Put it on eBay, I'll get the new thing. You get the new thing, the same company's like, you're so stupid! You have the old thing! We got the new thing! Oh, okay. And each time it's like, hey dummy, you got the old thing! Oh, hey dummy, you got the old thing! Oh. Are you tired of being on that thing? Because when you look at marketing, most marketing, be wise about this, most marketing is designed to keep you discontent. It's designed to keep you discontent, which is going contrary to what the Bible says a Christian should be. We should be content with what we have because I'm looking at a room full of rich people right now. If you compare yourself with the people of this world, why would God bless you so much that you would be in the upper 5% of people on the planet? We're all rich. We should be so content with with, with what God has given to us. And yet the person with thorns in their compromised soil, they aren't content. They don't have peace in their life because they're always like, ah, I need something more, I need something more. I'm always chasing the next thing, I'm always chasing the next thing with no rest and no Sabbath. And you know, I want, I want, you, to, I want you to know this. I want you to know that in this life, if you're a Christian, in this life, you will be asked to sacrifice things in this life. Stop looking for the path that requires you to not sacrifice because that path is not the one the Lord has you on. The Lord who sacrificed himself has those that follow him live lives of sacrifice. If you're doing something for the Lord and you're like, yeah, this doesn't feel like any sacrifice at all, I would observe carefully what you're doing. 
You know, there's going to be times in your life where you may go, well, God, if I give this up or if I stop doing this, then it's almost like, God, you're going to owe me. Just know this. God's never going to owe you or me at all. My wife reminded me of this this morning. Well, not she reminded me of something, but yesterday, this I knew. Yesterday was our anniversary. So our anniversary yesterday, and it was 17, it's 17 years, right? So it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So 17 years we've been married, and uh, it's great. So it was like, yeah, what'd you guys do? Saturday, like, what'd you guys do? It's Saturday. It's Saturday. I... Well, wait a second. Like, don't you love your wife? You at least got her a car, didn't you? No. Oh, you are in trouble, man. You are. You're, this is your last Sunday. You're not going to be here next Sunday. <laughs> well, she got you a card, right? No. And I'm not opposed to cards or flowers or dinners or any of that. And, and we'll do that. It's just Saturday was not the right day. You know why? Because Sunday is the next day. And there's things that need to get done on Saturday for a pastor. But we were, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. Are you saying that what you do for God is more important? Your relationship with God is more important than your relationship with your wife? Absolutely. And that's the way it should be. For my wife, she loves the Lord more than she loves me, as it should be. Which means at times you may have to make a sacrifice. Yeah, so our anniversary dinner is going to be postponed by a couple of days. And then she's going off to a, she's taking a bunch of fourth and fifth graders, I think, on a trip next week for four days. So we'll push off our anniversary till next week sometime, right? But here's the best part. I have my wife. So what if there's not a card or there's not something on that day? I think we get so stuck on the superficial that we miss something and then we get our priorities wrong. You know, Dawn is awesome and I know you guys know this, but from the first time that I met her, she has always freed me up to serve the Lord. She has always freed me up to serve the Lord. Hey, Don, there's this pastor's conference in Tucson. It's going to be like four days. I'm going to be suffering in really nice weather and you're going to have all four kids. Go, go. It's going to be good. You get to see the other guys, get to be refreshed, go. That's how she's been. If you have any blessing from what happens here from the pulpit or counseling or anything, just realize that I have a wife that has freed me to serve the Lord not to the point of abusing my family or ignoring them, but to just be free to serve the Lord. It's a team effort here. And so she reminded me of an event that happened eight years ago today. And so if we could, uh, you could dim the lights. We won't show the video just yet, but just, uh, I want to show you some pictures. This was eight years ago today. She told me this this morning and I, I quickly found some pictures. So here's some pictures of eight years ago today. So eight years ago today, yeah, so they, remember that hard packed soil that we were talking about? Yes, just a few inches under that is that limestone. So there's me on the left. I'm holding Remington, who's now, who's now sitting right there. Are you 10? Remy, you're 10, right? He's 10. I'm going to go with that. He's 10. He was, he was just a little over a year in that picture right there. And these are a bunch of guys from the church that we had gone to, and they were helping us do something. Do what? Look at the next picture here. Move. Eight years ago today, the U-Haul left Paul's in Arizona, Prescott, Arizona, and started to drive to the northwest, to a place we've never lived. It's funny, because there's a U-Haul, and then we couldn't quite fit everything in there, so we added the little tiny thing on the end there. But anyway, and then uh, eight years ago as well, like, there's Miley, there, there's, there's Miley uh, trying to slide down the ramp. I don't think that was very effective. There's Remy down there. Look at that fence. Look at that fencing. Anyway, let's go on here. Um, and so... Uh, 
Miley's getting one more, one more ride through the gravel in a little trike that she can't quite reach the pedals on. I'm not sure what that was about. Do you see those rocks though? Yeah, those like little, those are the things you're pulling up out of the ground, like these rocks. Uh, and we go on and, uh, this was also eight years ago to this day. It was Jaya and Xander's last day at school, at a school that they loved with teachers that they loved in the only place that they have ever lived their whole life. I need you to understand this. You cannot be averse to making sacrifice for God. Stop living the American mindset of how this life is all about your comfort because it is not about your comfort, Christian. It has never been about your comfort. Jesus came and it wasn't about his comfort. It was about a life of sacrifice and serving people. And so, Jaya, you can't see it in this picture here, but her eyes are red because she had just been crying because she just said goodbye to her friends. And Xander was not, he was, you know, he was just sad. And so it's one of those things where like, okay, the family's doing this. It's a team. The whole team's doing this. The whole team's going to do this thing. You have to be willing to make sacrifice for the Lord. You can't go, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to live in compromised soil. I want to be able to do everything. You can't. If you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to have to say no to some things. And if you say no to those things, God will never owe you because he will bless you above and beyond what you can ask or think. I mean, for my son Xander, Xander and I are going to go on a missions trip to Brazil this summer. Like there's opportunities that have opened up and there's things that have happened here in the last eight years of the church that have been amazing. And I just want you to know, um, you know, the the problem with our um, country, the problem with our country is not the White House. It's the house of God. If the people of God would just sacrifice and do what God's called them to do, it would change our country. We like to defer problems to other things and not look in the mirror. Does Humboldt County have issues? Yes, Humboldt County has issues. But you know what the problem in Humboldt County is? Is the fact that every Christian in Humboldt County is not willing to live a sacrificial life for Jesus. What would our county look like if every Christian lived sacrificially for Christ? It would change this entire county. It would absolutely change this county. The question is, no one's asking you to change somebody else. The question is, what are you doing? When you look at the soil of your heart, God's asking you to examine it. I can tell you that I've been in different places of the soil in my life, for sure. The trampled, hardened soil. Oh yeah, I've been there. The rocky soil, you know, where it's just, you know, excited for a season, but then kind of like, eh, yeah, I've been there. Thorns where I lived a compromised life and other things started to choke out the life of the word of God in, my, in me. Yes, I've been there too. The good soil, let me just tell you, there's nothing like being in the good soil though and having good soil in your heart. Because you can just receive God's word and you just know it to be true. And the thing with um, receiving the truth of God's word is if you receive it, he gives you more. What I love about Joe Kent is Pastor Joe will share, hey, you know what I just found out? Something I just discovered in the Bible. I'm like, Joe, you've been walking with the Lord for like 50 years and you found something new in the Bible? That gives me hope because I can expect to find more things about my God as I grow older that I never found out. Think about this. There's so much to know about God that we have all of eternity to learn about God. Wait, eternity has no end. Exactly. That's how much of God there is to know without end. So how about you start that journey here on this earth of daily getting to know who God is in his word and expecting to find out new things about God as you continue. And we're just about ready to 
finish up here. But I want to review the three enemies. We all have three enemies for our heart. The three enemies of our heart, as we've seen in this passage of Scripture, the three enemies of our heart are, and do we have this screen? If we could put this one up here. The three enemies of our heart. In verse 4, we saw the birds, which represented the devil. The devil loves hard soil, hard heart. The devil will come in. He's an enemy. In verse 5, we saw for the shallow soil, it's the flesh. It's that emotional. I want, I want Christianity to be just a purely emotional experience. Well, then it's our flesh that can be our own enemy. And in verse 7, we saw with the thorns, the compromised one, it's the world. It's what the world tells us is important and what we got to be like and how we have to be like them. And so these are three very common enemies to the believer, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so we have three enemies of the heart. It would be great if we had three, like a counterpart, like three champions of our heart. We do have three champions of our heart. In verse 4, okay, the devil loves the hard heart. Well, Jesus overcame the devil. Well, the flesh... The flesh that wants emotion all the time, the Holy Spirit has overcome the flesh. And the world, the Father, has overcome the world. So for the three enemies of your heart, you have three champions of your heart, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You can live a victorious life for Christ. And if you find your heart in any of those three places that aren't good, all you need to do is ask God to change your heart. He wants to and he will change your heart your heart. Um, Verse 23, the last verse we're going to look at this morning. As for what is sown on good soil, this is the last soil here, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. If you ask God to soften the soil of your heart, if you make sacrifices for God, if you seek God with all of your heart, there's this abundant blessing that God will do in your life. And don't lock that in to go, oh, it's going to be financial. (laughs) There are a lot of very poor people. All they have is money. Don't be one of those people in this life where you're so poor that all you have is money. God will give us the things that so fulfill us even deeper than physical possessions. Sometimes we'll get those physical possessions, but that's not the goal of this life. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here and lead us in a closing song. And as they do, I just got to ask you the question, where is your heart? As you've gotten on the treadmill of this parable and as you've had your your heart rate start to go up and as you've examined your heart, have you noticed that, wait, I think there's a condition going on within me. When we started to talk about the shallow soil, I I kind of found myself squirming a little bit. When we talked about the thorns and the compromised life, I was kind of, I didn't want to hear that. When it had to do with the hard heart that doesn't forgive, I don't want to forgive some people. I don't want to hear that. I... You're being invited by Jesus one more time to ask God to change your heart. He will do it, but you have to want him to do that. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes. <clears throat> this first invitation is going to be for a person who's not a Christian. For the person who, as you've heard this message, you've connected some dots and you realize, oh, you've been to church, you've heard about the Bible, you've even read some parts of the Bible, but you realize that you aren't a Christian. That what you think about the Bible shows that you don't actually believe in God. And you realize that this morning that that can't be disconnected. 
I want to encourage you that you can ask Jesus this morning and you can receive him as your savior. He will absolutely come into your heart. He just needs you to open the door from the inside. So that's where you're at this morning. You can pray a prayer like this, whether you're here or listening on the radio or the internet. Pray something like this. Dear Jesus, I need you. I want to open up my heart to you so that you can come in and be my king, be my ruler, be my friend, be my savior. Please come in. I ask that you would forgive me for all of my sins, the ones I have committed, I am committing, and the ones that I don't even know about that I will commit in the future. Jesus, I just ask for your forgiveness. I can't fix me. Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God, that you came to this earth, that you told the truth, you told parables, you loved people. Jesus, I believe you died on a cross for me and all of my sins. And I believe you rose again on the third day. Jesus, I believe that one day I will see you face to face because I am your child now. Jesus, help me live a sacrificial life for the people around me. Help me live a sacrificial life for you. Help me serve you in the way that you created me to serve you. I love you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. If you prayed that prayer, I'm not going to embarrass you, but would you raise your hand just so that I can acknowledge it? Is there anybody here this morning? I see your hand. Is there anyone else that prayed that prayer? You can put your hand down. God bless you. Lord, for our... For this, this young lady here, I just thank you so much, God, for your deep love for her and for anyone else that I didn't see uh, their hand. Lord, you saw them. God, we just do pray. As a church family, we pray that you would just absolutely fill her, not to the top, but overflowing with your grace and your peace and your love. That she would, from her overflow of grace and peace and love, love the people around her. Thank you that she's forgiven. She's in your hands and no one, not even the enemy, can take her out of your hands. God, for, for uh, the rest of us here, and so we have our heads bowed and eyes closed. This is for you, you're a believer, but maybe it's the unforgiveness. You're hardening your own heart. Maybe it's the shallowness of your life. You go from emotional experience to emotional experience. Or maybe it's that idea of thorns. You live a compromised life. You're trying to live in the world and be a Christian, and you realize that it doesn't work. If you find yourself in one of those three places and you just want God to do a work in the soil of your heart, could you just raise your hand so I could pray for you? Okay. Yep, I see your hands. Lots of hands. Okay, you put your hands down. Papa, I pray for these dear brothers and sisters. Lord, you hear their hearts cry. They just can't make the change themselves. They need you to do it. So God, can you please do the work that only you can do? You won't be, it won't be harsher than it needs to be. It'll be just the effectiveness that it needs to be to get the soil to the place where it's fertile and where seed can land and it can grow and it can produce fruit 30, 60, 100 times. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for telling us the truth, even when it's sometimes hard to hear, because you love us. In your name we pray, amen.